0: First of all, just a word to say, uh, I'm glad to be back, was on vacation uh, in Florida, well-rested, glad to be back with you, and I missed you. I know you didn't miss me, but I missed you, okay? And uh, we are continuing our series entitled uh, Set in Stone, and I wanted to thank John Pilkington, um, one of our elders, actually two of our elders, John Pilkington and um, Kevin O'Brien for filling in for me while I was gone. But I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Um, if you don't, that's all right. You can just listen in. Um, and as I, I've been thinking about this message, I, I've been uh, just had a lot of ideas come into my mind. And I, I keep thinking about the game of life. Anybody ever play the game of life? That board game? You know, if only life were that easy. Life is never that easy. You know, you just, you can roll, and then, oh, suddenly, wow, you have kids. Ah, that's it, it's over. And now they're in college. woo You know, that, it, it's, it doesn't tell you about the sleepless nights. It doesn't tell you about the worries or the financial pressures. And it doesn't do any of those things. It just chronicles, this game does, from college to marriage to, and then, you know, just through adulthood and then into retirement and, and thinking about all of the different things that we go through. And, you know, many people, though, do play game, uh, play life like a game. And, and for, that's a, just an unfortunate reality. People play fast and loose with life. Some people don't treasure it and realize just how wonderful life really is. And even, it's amazing to me just to think about how we can treasure life. I'm uh, After this message today, we're going to have a little renewal ceremony for uh, Steve and Sherry Norman. They'll be married 25 years this coming Wednesday. Yeah. Congratulations. Steve was laughing, and so, I mean, I, I, I'm i laughing too because, I mean, you still love him. That's funny. Um, uh, no, we're so glad to celebrate with them. It's going to be very brief, and uh, it's, we'll just have a time of them renewing their vows because, as they've pointed out to me, they both got married before they knew who Jesus was, really know, have invited them uh, him into their lives, and they just wanted to recommit themselves publicly to their Savior as well as to one another. So I'd encourage you just to stay here for a few moments um, as they we celebrate that. As I, I do think about life, though, and that's one of the good things in life, I'm, I'm also faced with the reality of, of death. We've all had to face death, and not just death, but death that comes screaming at us in the headlines. Just as I was on vacation and you hear the news just filled with uh, our namesake in Colorado, where... Some idiot, lunatic gunman walks into a movie dressed like a joker and just starts blowing people away. Unfortunately, those have become all too familiar. School shootings, I mean, they've been going on throughout the 20th century, but for myself, just the one that really stuck in my mind was Columbine. And then you have other shootings of just children killing children. And it doesn't matter if it's at a school or it's at a workplace or it's, it's even at a church. Um, Fred Winters, pastored in downstate Maryville, Illinois, was preaching on a Sunday morning when a 27-year-old man walks right up to the front of the church, exchanges words with the pastor, pulls out a 45 caliber handgun, pulls off three shots, the pastor pulls up the Bible to shield himself, but it was too late. He died from his injuries, leaving a wife and two, two little girls. Unfortunately, murder has become too commonplace within our world today, and the Bible's pretty clear that we are not to murder. I want, you, I want us to all stand together as we read the Word of today, as we look within these, these Ten Commandments, as we've been looking that they are set in stone, and therefore are our benefit. And this is a very short verse today uh, that I want to read to you. But we're in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. We're going to read the Scripture, and then we'll pray. be reading from the English Standard Version. Simply, you shall not murder. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, we know that life is not a game, but we know that so many people think that it is. They play fast and loose with life, failing to take into consideration the true worth of each, each individual that you have created. So, Lord, be in our time today. Help us to understand this truth and apply it to our lives. That we might go forth better radiating your glory. Lord, help us to see how we are responsible. How, l- help us to look within our own hearts to examine the thoughts and intentions and attitudes thereof that your name might receive glory within us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The game of life. Looking at the Sixth Commandment, we've we've talked about, uh, as I've said before, we're, we've been looking at the, each of the Ten Commandments, and we've seen that the first half of the Ten Commandments, also called the Decalogue, is talking about our relationship with God. It is our vertical relationship, while the second half of the Ten Commandments is about our relationships with one another. That's why when Jesus was asked what is the first and greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is summing up the first commandment set of commandments, and then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That encapsulates the second half of the Ten Commandments, and that's when we're, we're really beginning to look at today, and it's you shall not murder. Now, I think this is the commandment that many of us have a hard time relating to. It's not something that we personally struggle with. We can talk about idolatry and that we have idols of our hearts, things that we put in place over God, we can talk about our relationship with our spouses. We can talk about coveting. We can talk about all of the other Ten Commandments. But murder is not something that each one of us really struggle with on a daily basis. At least that's what I used to think. But the more that I have looked at it, the more that I have lived life, I have seen that it is applicable to the teenager as it is the suburban housewife, as it is to anyone else in a different country. God values life. And I, I think that how we do play fast and loose with life, and I'm reminded of a student I used, that I, that I used to have. His name was Vladimir Hernandez. V- Vladimir was, um, went to a Christian school and I was his youth pastor uh, when I first got into pastoral ministry. Um, and uh, it was in the city of Chicago and Vlad, he, um, he, he really was attracted to the world like most teenagers are. He would come in with big, giant gold chains. He wanted to be a rapper, and he wanted—he was really attracted to that gang-banger lifestyle. That's what he wanted to do. And, and no matter how much we talked to him, no matter how much we preached to him, no matter how much we, we tried to show him just how foolish that life really was, he wouldn't listen. And then he went into high school, and I lost track of, of him. I moved out to New England and uh, was going to school out there, and I, I didn't really know what happened to him until uh, I heard from another former student about a tragic turn that Vlad had taken in his life. He got his wish. He ended up joining a gang, uh, best that I know, and he was hanging out in Chicago on George Street, which was really interesting to me because I lived on George Street. It was just a few blocks down. He was sitting in the car at 10 p.m. When another car rolls by, gold-colored car, and you can guess the story, gun came out and shot him. He was dead. It was 10 o'clock p.m., it was in September of 2008. This young life just ends in a moment. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm used to hearing the headlines just like you are, but I'm not used to seeing the name of someone I know in the headline. I mean, here was this young man. You think that he has his life in front of him, and it's just just gone in a minute. And we have a tendency to exalt even that lifestyle especially among our young people. I mean, we, we live in a culture and world that is preoccupied with death. Did you realize, I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but this last century, the 20th century, has been named or given the moniker, the century of death. Some sociologists even call it the century of mega-death. More deaths took place than any other century in history. That's, that's remarkable to me. I mean, just looking and thinking, for instance, four individuals, if you think about this, four individuals are responsible for 175 million deaths last century. Four. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, and Mao. Now, we think, oh, that's a little far from us. And, you know, we think of World War II, and and, and we, we don't realize that, you know, that's our century. And how quickly that can happen anywhere. And, and just look at the numbers. For instance, the Armenian Genocide in Turkey. I don't remember hearing about this. I mean, this was way before I was familiar with the news. But I remember going to Israel and seeing the Armenian Quarter. Jerusalem is divided into four quarters. And there is the Armenian Quarter. And there are signs that still talk about the Armenian Genocide when 1.5 million people were exterminated. Or Stalin Stalin, who places a famine, forces it on his own people, the Russians, and 7 million people die. You don't hear about that at all. I mean, we're much more familiar with the Holocaust because of, 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 of certain films, like Schindler's List. But even then, I mean, we don't think of even the Rape of Non-King When the the Japanese came and committed such atrocities to the Chinese between 1937 and 1939, 300,000 were dead. Or even the the Holocaust between 1938 and 1945. And I'm just looking at at those within the concentration camps. Six million dead. Or Pol Pot in Cambodia between 1975 and 1979. Two million dead. Or even closer to our own time, Bosnia-Herzegovina. 200,000 deaths. That's between 1992 and 1995. Or even like the Hotel Rwanda. What, what happened in Rwanda in 1994. 800,000 deaths. You put all that together, that's 17.8 million lives lost. That's astonishing. That's not including all of the wars people have died in. But you know what's even more amazing when I look at 17.8 million people? Since Roe v. Wade was enacted in 1973, an estimated 55.6 million babies have been aborted. Now, think about that. You've got the Armenian Genocide, Stalin's forced famine, the Rape of Nanking, Nazi Holocaust, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Bosnia Herzegovina, and Rwanda. All of those put together don't equal what we've had going on in the United States since 1973. That's astonishing. So we think of genocides in and, other and places and other lands, and they're far away, and they, they come at us in the news, and we can turn it off. We can turn off what's going on in Syria right now. It doesn't affect us personally, but this affects us. This affects us. And we start to understand that life is extremely valuable, but we've been playing a game with life. And we're going to be called to an account for it. And this is something we all need to think about very soberly. This is not a political thing. Please don't don't misconstrue me. This is something that that God that's personal to the heart of God because God Himself is the author of life. So as we begin to look at the sixth commandment, I want us to see several different things. The first is this, and I want you to follow along with me in your notes. They have been included uh, within your bulletins. But we need to understand this. Understanding if we're to really apply the sixth commandment, if we're to get it, I want to get beyond politics. I don't want to talk about politics. But I want us to to see that if we're to apply the Sixth Commandment, it requires us, first of all, understanding life's beginning. Understanding life's beginning. Where did life begin? Who created it? It's pretty simple, but it involves us understanding that, first of all, that God is the creator. God is the initiator. God is the maker and sustainer of life. He is the one who is created everything out of nothing did you realize that i mean each of us when we create and build something we have to build with materials just like this building it had to be built with wood and glass and concrete and put together none of the the builders of this building could just go or you know do the whole bewitch thing and then have a building we can't do that god is the one that just goes boom he speaks it and there it is It's interesting that the Latin terminology of speaking of God as creator is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God is the only only being that can create something out of nothing. We all need something to create something, not him. He creates everything by the word of his mouth. And he is the one who created life, that breathed life into man. God is the creator of life. Now, we have scientists today that specialize in a lot of different bioethical issues and uh, very some controversial reproductive technologies where we can even talk about a test tube baby. I used to have a guy that I worked with. That's what he called me. That was his nickname for me. He was older than me. He always called me a test tube baby. And even just recently, the first test tube baby celebrated, I think, uh, 34th birthday, something along that line. But that's not creating life. I mean, it is. But they still had to use the elements, the building blocks of humanity to do it. They couldn't do it out of nothing. Only God can do that. God is the creator of life. Not man. God is the Lord of life and we are not. I'm reminded of... A story that I heard several years ago by John Piper, a uh, pastorate, um, used to be, now he's retired from pastoring, but he's the head of Desiring God Ministries. He was a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was speaking out against abortion. Matter of fact, he was protesting in a, in, a, in a nonviolent way. We don't advocate violence at all, but in a nonviolent way at an abortion clinic, and he was arrested, and he was put in jail. And he he, uh, talks about being in jail, and he started getting into a conversation with a male nurse there who used to work in an abortion clinic. And he says this, for about an hour through the bars of my jail sale on on October 30th, I talked about abortion with a prison nurse. He had left the Catholic Church over birth control and became Presbyterian. He was not willing to talk about getting right with God, but he was willing to talk about my ludicrous ideas on abortion. He knew the evil and misery of our society well. He spoke of cocaine babies and AIDS babies. He spoke of the women in prison who are pregnant again and again, forgetting how often and usually on drugs. He spoke of the 23 children per month at St. Joseph's pulled from abusive or drug homes, but not up for adoption because you have to have the parents okay for adoption. Abortion, he said, at least relieves some of this misery. To which I responded, killing people is not a good way to relieve misery. At first he said, you people always use emotional language like killing. But before the hour was over, he had conceded almost of everything. He was willing to say, yes, the unborn are human persons. Abortion is killing a child. It diminishes the value of life. It leads to euthanasia and fetal tissue experimentation. It is wrong. He said, I wouldn't get one for my wife, etc. But he insisted that the right of a woman to abort must be protected at virtually all costs. What can I say? what piper says no arguments could touch him he had conceded all the facts that i thought would lead to a pro-life position the unborder human persons aborting them is killing it is even wrong but what i came to see is that none of this carried any weight against one's over overriding article of faith in his mind the right of women to choose abortion function is in his mind as an absolute it is not debatable it is an article of faith he even said this is my belief in a very solemn way I was mystified, Piper says. I asked, is there any any other area of life in which you admit the human personhood of someone but give other persons the absolute right to treat the first person any way they please, even to the point of killing? He said, no, only here. But why, I marveled. It's my belief, he said. The woman's right to choose to have her child killed is the supreme and ultimate value. It cannot be touched by any reasoning or any facts. It is God. When he walked away, I lay there stunned at the power and irrationality of evil. There was no getting through. Child killing. He even allowed the phrase, It's permissible if the child is in the womb. Reason, the absolute, unassailable, supreme right of a woman to do as she wishes with her pregnancy. Child. See, this male nurse conceded that life began at conception and fully understood the baby was being killed. He would do that, but why? Because he valued a woman's right to decide who lives and who dies. That's what's going on. See, the woman was choosing who lives and who dies. She's claiming the right that God himself has, and alone has. No one else has that right. But he was noticing, and he put it in theological terms, that it's, it's the person's right to be God. I decide who lives and who dies. And that's not what God says. God is the supreme author and creator of life. And life doesn't just begin at birth. The first moment that those, those that cry pierces the air. I remember I was present at all three of my children's delivery. I even got to help pull one of my children out. Um, I was a little freaked out. I don't know if anybody's ever been in labor, but, uh, well, yeah, ladies, I know. Okay. But I was feeling pain. <laughs> Uh, because I couldn't help my wife. I mean, I could massage her, and, and she had this superhuman strength at that moment in time. I just, I, I couldn't imagine it. But as, in, as uh, she was in labor, and then my, my daughter entered into this world with a full mess of hair, and her cry pierced the air, I just remember thinking, wow, life. But it, I, I knew that that baby was a, a child way before she ever entered into this world. I remember going to the doctor and, and hearing that heartbeat. Do you remember that? For those of you who have children, when you put that little, those little nodules up and you hear the... It's a child. Wow. This child changes everything. So we could see that life begins at conception. I mean, you've even seen the time-life photo. I hope, I hope you have. It's a beautiful photo of where they had to do the surgery on the baby in the womb and you see the little hand coming out it was the picture of the year and then they 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 fixed the child and put the child back to wait it was an amazing photo so i think we can concede and even even this this very liberal male nurse was willing to concede it begins at conception and it, it's interesting that it not only begins at conception but it we have to see that life that we all as human individuals not plants not animals But only humans are created in the image of God. That's that letter C under number one there. We alone are created in the image of God. Not plants, not animals. We didn't come from monkeys. We alone are distinct created in the image of Almighty God. And I've talked to a different uh, evolutionists debating them and and my i have a cousin of mine who's a cell biologist and we've gone back and forth and he's like it's an undeniable fact they have the the theory of evolution and i said then why is it still called a theory number one if it's an undeniable fact number two where are the transitional forms there are no transitional forms meaning that we see the picture that was put up at the monkey, monkey scopes trial in 1922 where the artist rendering of us The different man, pilt-down man, Paleolithic man, all all the way up. But we can't find them. They're theories. The only skeletons that have been made are peace from different areas. We alone are made in the image of God. And it's amazing to me that people are more likely to defend animal rights than we are the right of the unborn. What kind of world are we living in? I was even, uh, I have a relative of mine, and I think I've shared this with you before. He's a big-time vegan, nothing against my vegan people. <laughs> we love you, we'll have prime rib together. Um, and I understand that. I have some friends that have some very serious health-conscious things about it. They don't like the killing of animals, but I've seen other people go way, way, way out. And, and one of them, he has this tattoo. It's, he's just inked, and it says, meat, in all like blood, it says, meat is murder. On his arm, and then on the inside of his bicep he's got a revolver, and then it's got Colonel Sanders, the king from Burger King, Ronald McDonald and Wendy and it has a bullet going through their brains okay he is so very committed to vegetarianism to the point where it's it's a religion and it's like you know I appreciate your zeal for your cause and i I, I don't agree with animal abuse and pumping them full of hormones I don't agree with that I, I grew up on a farm I, but And I think we're to treat animals ethically. Even the Bible talks about treating one's beast ethically. We're not to abuse animals. But you have validated and said that animals are on the same line with humans. And they're not. Man alone is created within the image of Almighty God. So we see that life starts at conception. And that we alone are created in God's image. Now, we have some foundation of life. Let's look more specifically at this commandment. What does it entail? Is all killing wrong? Now, I even believe that I taught you, for those that uh, might be new, I have this little way of remembering the Ten Commandments. Like one finger pointing to heaven, one God. Real easy. And then two words. Second commandment, for those that were here, what is it? Oh, come on, grace. No idols. Two words. Third commandment, three words. Three words. Honor God's name. Somebody was paying attention. The rest of you, shame on you. Okay, fourth one. Remember God's holy day. Good. Five. Fifth commandment, five words. Honor your father and mother. Okay, this one, you, you just point with your finger like that. And I, I told you, thou shalt not kill. Now, I've done some studying on this, and it's, it's a little bit different. It's actually thou shalt not murder. Murder. Now, that might seem like a trivial distinction to you, but actually it's not. Um, I think we need to understand this. What, what are the commandments boundaries? Determining. We need to be determining the commandments boundaries. That's number two within your notes. How do we determine the commandments boundaries? This is very important to understand this killing and murder, this distinction that is here. I remember hearing about this distinction when I was a young boy. I grew up in a little town, uh, Arthur, Illinois, the heart of Illinois, Amish country, which is about uh, three hours to the south. We go right down 47. And um, in our community, we had a huge Amish population as well as a large Mennonite population. Now, if you're not familiar with the Amish and the Mennonite, one of the first things that you need to know is they are pacifists. Complete pacifists. Okay? Now, I remember one Mennonite pastor and my grandfather, who ha- also happened to be a pastor, debating on what the commandment said. For those of you that grew up with the King James Version, it was thou shalt not kill. But the word actually is murder, and they were debating the word kill and murder. And I, I want us to examine that there are dif- dif- differences here, and that will help us to determine what the boundaries are. See, we have to know what this command is referring to, and that involves us examining the definition of the word that is used. Examining the definition of the word that is used. And I want to throw this up on the board here for you uh, on the screen. Let's throw that up. There it goes. The verb here is ratsach. Uh, word for, it, it includes both the unlawful or immoral killing of another human being, the specific meaning of the English word Murder. And also causing the death of another human being through careless or negligent behavior. That's listed in Deuteronomy 19 and the book of Numbers chapter 35. This verb is never used in the Old Testament of killing in war. Now, we even have to understand what, uh, what is it about war. We're going to get to that in just a moment to talk about war. Because there are wars in which killing is wrong and there are wars in which killing is allowable. Um, but we'll get to that in a moment. I want us to, to understand that if we're going to look at that, we have to see that this word is referring to murder primarily and manslaughter to a lesser extent. But how can we understand this, and what else can we see about it? I mean, God doesn't want us to murder. God doesn't want us to kill, right? Well, of course not. But what about the Old Testament? Let's look at the Old Testament. The Israelites, if you've ever read the book of Joshua, are killing people left and right. I mean, they are. They're going into the promised land. They're removing these people from the promised land. That seems to be a violation of this commandment. How do we understand it? How do we look at this? It seems contradictory. And we need to be analyzing the different biblical passages referring to it and and get some serious understanding on why is that allowable then and how come we're not doing that now? Now, we need to consider for a moment and stay with me. I know um, some of you are Bible scholars, some of you are not, some of you are novices, I don't want to overwhelm you. Uh, Just try to stay with me for a moment. But in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 16, I would encourage you to write that down in, the, in your margin. Um, Genesis 15, 16 is, is, is very good for understanding what was going on uh, in the Old Testament that allowed the Israelites to go and, and um, remove the land of these people. And the verse basically says this, the iniquity, this is God speaking to Abraham. Abraham has been promised this promised land, but not yet. They're not going to receive it yet. and matter of fact, they're not going to receive it until about 400 years from the period of Abraham. And God says why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In essence, God is the one God is love at his essence. Did you know that? God is love. We talk about the perfections or attributes of God. God is love at his essence, but he's not only love. Some people want to talk about I you know, talk about the God of love. We have all this stuff going on within the press today and the gay marriage debate. And, and I'm, I'm seeing people left and right say, oh, you need to read the Bible. Especially gay marriage advocates are saying, you need to read the Bible. God is love. Jesus never talks about it. Well, Jesus doesn't talk about a lot of things. But the Bible st- surely and s- definitely speaks to it. When they say, well, the God is love, that's all we should talk about. No, God is God of love, God is also a God of mercy, God is also a, g- a good God, He is a just God, and He's also definitely a God of wrath. He's all of these things, and you can't highlight one without the other. I've even heard people say, well, I prefer to think of God that way. That's fine, now you're telling me more about yourself than you are about God. Because you're choosing to highlight one over the other. Now we have to say, look at it balanced and say and place ourselves under it. We don't get to choose who we want God to be. We place ourselves under what God has revealed about Himself. And then we respond to that. So as God has revealed Himself as a God of love at His essence, goodness, He's also long suffering. He is patient with us, not treating us as our sins deserve. Is I can get an Amen there. Because if that were the case, if we were to be treated as our sins deserved, There would be no one here, me included. But God is merciful. He is gracious. He is good. And he is long-suffering. And he wants people to come to repentance. God does not delight in the death of anyone. The The book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. God says, I don't delight in the death of anyone. Turn from your wickedness and live. I don't delight. God doesn't delight in killing people. We sometimes think that God is out to get us. I mean, I, I have met so many people, and um, if it's your first time in church in a long time, just let me reassure you, the roof is not going to cave in. <laughs> I've met so many people over the years that, that believe that God is seriously out to get them, and as soon as they said in church, it's wham, smite. No, that's not how God operates. God desires people to come to repentance. He is long-suffering toward us. Aren't, we glad, aren't you glad that God is patient with you? I mean, I'm glad that God is patient with me. God desires that we come to him in life. But see, with the Amorites, their sin, he he was giving them time. It wasn't yet completed. And when it was completed, that's when the Israelites became God's sword of justice, if you will, to take the promised land. So we see that God is loving in his essence. You can even cite the book of Jonah. God is speaking and commands Jonah to go and speak to who? The Ninevites. The Ninevites were Assyrians. They were political enemies. The Ninevites had just done horrible, awful things to the Israelites over the years. Jonah was so angered that God would allow their repentance that he gets in a boat headed in the complete opposite direction. It's a total racial issue. He's like, no, I don't want them to come to repentance, God. They're not your people. They are foreign pagans that have totally done evil to us. And God says, no, I desire their repentance as well. Because I'm love at my essence. So we see that God, God desires us to turn to him and live. And we can see just who God is, and see and get a, a balanced understanding that, that, that in that those instances where the Israelites were going in, they were doing God's work, and God was directly speaking to them. Directly. These people weren't going, I sense God is leading us to do this. It was more, I'm telling you now. They're hearing him. Okay? And they are to go in and rid the land of this evil that has gone on because God alone knows the hearts of different individuals. God is completely pro-life and only brings death after all means of repentance have been exhausted. He is a God of love, mercy. He is a jealous God that loves us with an unquenchable love. He is also a consuming fire. He is a God of wrath. He spares anyone who comes to him in saving faith from these passages I referred to, it helps us to see, see the intrinsic dignity God places on all of human life. The intrinsic dignity that God places on all of human life. From the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, we see that God is a God of life. God cares about life and people coming to him. That doesn't mean that he won't show his wrath. He will. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't do that. no. You need to read further. Read the book of Revelation. You're going to see Jesus in awful wrath. He came as the suffering servant, offering salvation. And then at the, he give, he's giving people the opportunity to repent. And that, when that time, and they don't repent during that time, then he's going to come bringing his wrath. Going to bring his wrath. But through the scriptures, we can see the intrinsic dignity God places on human life. He values our lives more than we do. So much so that he saw us in our sin and he sent his son to seek and to save us. We are valuable, more valuable than money, fame, fortune, or anything else. God gave the supreme gift for your life, the life of his son. Each human has dignity in and of itself. Why? Because each life bears the image of Almighty God. Now, God places dignity on all of human life, which is why that we can see that this commandment includes several different things under its boundaries. The first is this, murder. Murder. And we've talked a little bit about that, but it, it covers a lot of other things too. Number two, suicide, assisted or otherwise. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at this. I, I've, done, I, I've dealt with this more than I care to imagine. It is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's also one of the most selfish acts that you can do. It is. It is. It's one of the most selfish acts that a person can do because what you're saying is is that I want people to deal with my life and I'm not even going to be there to help them. I'm going to deal with the pain and reality of my choices. You deal with it. I'm not. I'm out of here. And even when I I was in New England, it was unbelievable how many people that I had met. I mean, the place is spiritually oppressed. How many people had committed suicide was unbelievable. I I just can't tell you how many people that I've had to deal with over this issue. It is th- this suicide is included within this understanding. Murdering is also one's self. It also ca- and also covers abortion. Abortion. The atrocity and scourge of abortion. Some people say, well, in all instances, what about the rape of a mother or incest? Well, I would tell the story of Pam Stenzel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pam Stenzel. Uh, I heard her speak years ago uh, at a youth conference about a teenage girl who was 17 and was raped. The rape happened to result in pregnancy, which is very rare, by the way, but it does happen. Uh, She knew it wasn't the baby's fault that she was raped, and the baby was innocent in the matter. And while the baby was the result of rape, the child shouldn't bear the penalty for her father's terrible decision. So the 17-year-old mother decided to give the child up for adoption. As Pam was relating the story to the group that I was in, she said, you know, I am so glad that she decided to give up that child for adoption because if she didn't, I wouldn't be here today. My father was a rapist. My mother was 17 years old. But what what man meant for evil, God used for good. You're staring at this woman in the face going, wow. A Christian family adopted her. Now she speaks to thousands and thousands of women. It's an incredible testimony an incredible testimony of what god can do through the, the most evil act and it's an evil horrible act that one person could perpetrate to another and someone says "Well, what about incest there's another story that i would tell you of christy of hoferber who from her earliest memory had been told she was adopted by her christian parents but at the age of 30 went about trying to find her birth parents and when she did she found out that her grandfather had raped her mother and she was the result of that He had been put in prison for 18 months but then set free. Nevertheless, see, God had, this girl had given up her baby to another family who adopted her and raised her. And she became a a pastor's wife and then also a mother and and loves her family. And she said even what what man meant for evil, God used for good. And this affects us. This affects me personally. I've had a member of my own family do this. I've even shared this with you before. Where there was a 15 year old niece of mine. They called and said, my, my sibling, a sister called me and she said, I'd like to talk with you. And my sister never calls. I said, Why are you calling me? And she starts telling me the story. She goes, My daughter is pregnant. We want you to take the baby. I was in seminary at the time. We'd had one child and, and we were debating on having another. And, and so we, we thought, we prayed about it. I talked to a pastor friend of mine who had adopted all of his children and he said, That baby will never be yours. What's to stop her later from taking that child? We, we continued to pray. We agonized over it. And then my pastor friend said, I know of a family that will take this child, that wants this child, that's been trying to have a child. They are ready to take this child and raise it and love it. I said, okay, that should be the family to take it. So I called my sister back and I said, hey, we're not going to take the baby. And before I could even finish that, she said, okay, we'll take care of it at our end. She went off and aborted the child. And I remember talking to a relative who's a Southern Baptist, been a deacon, who I found out later had helped fund it. And I said, why? He said, well, what was the alternative? I said, are you kidding me? He said, well, they, they've been living in squalor. This child's going to have no choices in life. I said, I had a family ready to take the child. You should see the white terror that went in his face. It was horrific to him to realize that he had helped participate within this and he did it to also help save face within his community this happens in churches don't let your pride in your image i mean we everyone sins but don't try to don't try to to cover up your sin young people young ladies young men if that ever happens to you i guarantee that though your parents might be angry to find that out they would be crushed if you were to abort that baby Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't look at just the short term. Look long term. I really appreciate what Mother Teresa said about abortion in the National Prayer Breakfast on February 4th, 1994. She said this, profound words, listen carefully. I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love. And we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. It doesn't mean to be condemnatory. It means to love. Jesus gave even his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love. That is, to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to respect, the life of her ch- to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. The father is likely to put other women into the same trouble, so abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. Many people are very, very concerned with the children of India, with the children of Africa, where quite a few die of hunger and so on. Many people are also concerned about all the violence in this great country of the United States. These concerns are very good, but often these same people are not concerned with the millions who are being killed by the deliberate decision of their own mothers. And this is why, and this is what is the greatest destroyer of peace today, abortion which brings people to such blindness. And for this, I appeal in India as I appeal everywhere. Let us bring the child back. The child is God's gift to the family. Each child is created in the special image and likeness of God for greater things, to love, and to be loved. In this year of the family, we must bring the child back to the center of our care and concern. This is the only way that our world can survive because our children are the only hope for the future. As older people are called to God, only their children can take their places. But what does God say to us? He says, even if a mother could forget her child, I will not forget you. I have carved you into the palm of my hand. We are carved in the palm of his hand. That unborn child has been carved in the hand of God from conception and is called by God to love and to be loved. Not only now in this life, but forever. God can never forget us. I will tell you something beautiful. We are fighting abortion by adoption, by care of the mother and adoption for her baby. We have saved thousands of lives. We have sent word to the clinics, to the hospitals and police stations. Please don't destroy the child. We will take the child. So we always have someone tell the mother's in trouble, come, we will take care of you. We will get a home for your child. And we have a tremendous demand from couples who cannot have a child. But I never give a child to a couple who have done something not to have a child. Jesus said, anyone who receives a child in my name receives me. By adopting a child, these couples receive Jesus. But by aborting a child, a couple refuses to receive Jesus. She says, please don't kill the child. I want the child. Please give me the child. I am willing to accept any child who would be aborted and give that child to a married couple who will love the child and be loved by the child. From our children's home in Calcutta alone, we have saved over 3,000 children from abortion. These children have brought such love and joy to the adopting parents and have grown up so full of love and joy. She also said, It is a poverty to decide that a child must die so that you may live as you wish. Two wrongs don't make a right. I'm even reminded of the story that I just read this past week of an 88-year-old woman in China. They have the one-child policy. I don't know if you saw this or not, but she goes around saving children. She saved 30 of them. You know where she found them? In dumpsters. Because they were dumped in dumpsters. And even the, the child that was found recently wrapped in a bag with its throat slit. I don't mean to... I don't mean to be so shocking as much as I mean to just Wake us up to the reality of the world in which we live in. We can't be ostriches putting our head in the proverbial cultural sand so it goes away. We have to face this reality that is going on in our world, all around us, and in our own families. But I digress, because this word is not just meant for abortion, but it's also for euthanasia. Write that down, euthanasia also known as the right to die movement. Those who are terminally ill who want to die on their own or uh, also assisting those who are considered not worthy of life or having a quality of life. The question is, is who determines that? Who determines that? I think of the, the, the footballer, the 23-year-old uh, soccer player who ended up being paralyzed and he's been petitioning uh, in Great Britain for the right to die because he doesn't believe that he, he loathes his very existence. But I, I would guarantee if he would have some time to talk with Johnny Erickson Tata, she would be able to persuade him. 17 years old, takes a dive off of a diving board in the Chesapeake Bay, ends up shattering her spine, and she becomes a quadriplegic. And she, For months she was in her bed wondering why, 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 why. Will I ever get married? Will I, will I ever have this happen? Well, my life is going to change so dram- dramatically. God, you can heal me. Why don't you heal me? But God has used her to touch thousands, if not millions of people that have been through disabilities. Or I think of Nick You've seen? I don't know if you've seen the video. He's the man who was born with the syndrome where he was born without arms or legs. Australian preacher who goes now and speaks to schools and gives hope to thousands of children. God is able to take even the most difficult of situations and bring life through it. When we think of euthanasia, we're just one step closer to looking even at the the world that Hitler imagined for those that are not worthy to die, that weren't like the, the Aryan race. Life is a gift in all forms. In all forms. This word also applies to certain forms of war. Certain forms of war. Should Christians fight in war? Some say no. Jesus said, turn the other cheek after all. And he told us to love our enemies. But scripture also says, and this is what we have to be very discerning when we go to scripture. It also says that we are to be able to help those who cannot help themselves. And that God has placed rulers over us. Like Romans chapter 13, verse 14. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see there that God has placed and established authorities over us that have the the ability to discharge justice. Now some people say, well, that doesn't mean anything about war. Well, I also would look at the book of Matthew chapter 3 when soldiers, Roman soldiers who had been at war, had been fighting in, in the army, comes to John, come to John the Baptist and they say, what must we do? They are repentant. They want to follow God. And he doesn't say, leave the army. He doesn't say that. He, he, he says, and I quote, uh, I'll make sure that I get this right. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. He didn't tell them to leave military service, to, but to make sure that they are soldiers of integrity. Now, there are certain forms of war. There are certain wars that Christians are, should, should not be participating in. When it's to further our own agenda, then we shouldn't be participating within it. That's what we call just war. There is what we call just war theory. When someone's life is in danger, like within the Holocaust, we are to go and help someone who is being oppressed and exterminated, then it is our obligation to go and help those who cannot help themselves. That is when it is worthy. And we must make sure that we have exhausted all attempts at peace before we ever do go to war with anyone. I'm running out of time, but let me continue on and and walk through these other ones rather, rather quickly. We can also see that this includes certain forms of war and bioethics. Bioethics. Bioethics is the study of controversial ethics brought about by advances in biology and medicine. Stuff like in vitro fertilization, where a woman's eggs are harvested then fertilized when they are and then replanted. However, the excess embryos are often kept in storage through cryogenic freezing and then sometimes destroyed, given to someone else, or used for testing purposes once the couple has the child they want. And according to the RAND Consulting Group, there are 500,000 frozen embryos in the United States. Souls on hold. Fertilized embryos. We have to be very, very careful because the advances in ethics are astonishing. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing with life, scientists are doing with life. We're talking about cloning, talking about human-man hybrids. This used to be the stuff of science fiction or Dr. Moreau's Island. But this is going on, this experimentation, these thought process, human-android hybrids. We must be very, very careful in what we do with life. It's not science fiction any longer. There are many other bioethical things that devalue the dignity of human life, and we must be cer- discerning in our use of them. Not all technology is good, especially when the ethics don't catch up with them. But only some of us, are, uh, and honestly, only some of us will ever participate in war. I mean, many of us um, will not have to face the idea of abortion, and these are all way out of from us but there's another thing that the scripture equates at times to murder and that is hate hate jesus said that hate can be a form of murder matthew chapter 5 verse 21 through 22 you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or consider 1 John three fifteen. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We may not be guilty of many of the other things I've spoken about today, but I know that almost all of us in this room have been guilty at one time or another of hating our brother. We say, well, how then can that be a form of murder? Because that's where the next step is. We go from the thought to the action. No family is exempt. It happened in the very first family, did it not? Between two brothers, Cain and Abel. The very first murder occurred. And some of us have had that thought run through our mind that we hate them so much we wish they were dead. We're not to hate our brother. It is a form of murder. We're to love your neighbor or love our neighbor as ourselves love our brother even loving our enemies now one final word about the commandment what it does not include i'm going to step through these rather quickly and i believe that i've already mentioned but just to make sure i wish us to understand that the commandment does not include just war and does not include capital punishment again i would cite romans chapter 13 verse 14 that he who bears the sword does not bear so in vain that that is completely allowable, even within our New Testament understanding. Uh, For those that wish to debate me on that, well, we can do that at another time. But I think Scripture is completely showing that there is understanding of just war, where we are to defend the innocents after all attempts of peace have been exhausted. But it's not to further our own agenda, politically or even economically. We also must make sure that that any just war that those who are innocent should be uh, protected at all costs there's many other different points to it which we don't have the time to go into today now what are we to do in the midst of our world that it's turned its back on life we must step up and take part and accept our responsibility god desires that we be fighting in the battle for life we can't stay on the sidelines we are all participants in it in some way or another and I'm not talking about protesting. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm not just talking about politics anymore. I'm talking, I, I mean, I'm not talking about those things. I, I mean, looking within our own hearts first and reaching out to our friends and neighbors. We can all take part. And it involves uh, five different things. Here's the first one. Repenting of any murder we may have committed in our hearts or in deed. Now, I know that that alienates some from the deed perspective but I know that there are some here today that you have committed murder it may not have been a drive by maybe it has been maybe it's something that you've done that no one else has known about maybe though you have you have gone through an abortion you say I can't forgive myself but I'll tell you something you may not be able to forgive yourself but you're not God thank the Lord for that God is and he died on the cross to forgive you of that sin and it involves you repenting of any murder. If you repent, and He will forgive you even of that sin. There have been thousands of women who have had abortions that have repented of it, that have experienced the pain of it later on because the clinics never tell you that. The clinics are, are just telling you your options, but they're not going to tell you of the guilt that you feel every year when that bir- the, the birthday rolls around. They don't tell you of the, the, the shadow that hangs over you. But you know Jesus is there to forgive you. And he will forgive you. He will forgive you. Even a man, if you, you, know, you encourage her to do it, it involves you repenting of that as well. And he will forgive you. And then secondly, it involves receiving Jesus' forgiveness through the cross. It's available to you. You have to repent and then receive it though. And you say, well, I, I, I really can't forgive myself. And I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Let me tell you something. When you say that I can't forgive myself and that God can, you're making yourself a higher authority than God. That's what you're doing. You have to be able to say that God has forgiven me. And if God can forgive me of that, because of what He did, He died on the cross in my place. He took all of our sins upon Himself and became sin for us. He died the death that we were to die. He took the wrath of God upon Himself that we might have life in Him. He offers that forgiveness to everyone Don't think that the people within this room are perfect or the person next to you is perfect. They're not. Every one of us is in need of forgiveness. Every one of us has messed up. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And each one of us stands condemned in the sight of God and in and of ourselves. And each person has to receive eternal life by accepting, receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life and not just doing it in name only, but in deed and in their heart. After you have repented and received, then we are, to be, we are all to respond to God's call to defend life. Speak up in your family. Speak up with your friends, but do so with compassion. Stand up for what is right. And if you're scared, which I think any of us are, to speak about that, because these are hot-button issues. Is it not? I mean, we don't like to get into discussions with our family members on this stuff. We all have, it brings out emotions within each one of us. And it brings out conflict within the family, what we don't want to do. So we walk around and step around it, just having this very trivial, socially acceptable conversation so we don't delve into it, and the whole family ends in a big, giant argument. But we still must speak up. And if you are afraid, then I'm going to ask you to request God for courage, because he'll give it. If you're a cowardly lion, God will give you courage. Question God for courage. And remember, when time gets tough, when you want to give in, refuse to compromise. There is, no comp- there is no compromise on this issue. God is decidedly for life in all of its forms. In all of its forms. Refuse to compromise your calling. Don't give in. Don't give up. And don't point out other people's errors when you have it in your own life. Be willing to concede it and admit it. Don't try to cover up. If a sin happens like that in your family, don't try to hide it. Don't try to make yourself holier than now. That's not the point of it. It's not to be condemnatory. It's to be compassionate. Compassionate. We forget that. And that's the last point that I want us to understand and to take home with us. We need to resolve to be compassionate to our neighbor no matter what the cost. Compassionate. Notice that. And I really mean that because I've seen too many Christians start yelling verbally abusing accosting those that are different from them instead of loving them i love the words of mother Teresa again hear them just this short little little uh, paragraph how do we persuade a woman to not to have an abortion as always we must persuade her with what love love and we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts Jesus gave even his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of of abortion should be helped to love, that is, to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to expect the life of her child. The child of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. Let's not give until, let's let us give until it hurts. Let's understand that life's not a game to be trifled with but it's precious in the sight of God. Let's defend it in His name, under His power, serving and loving with great compassion, making sure that we are not compromising ourselves so that His name might be praised. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You are the author of life. Many of us within this room have been faced with the unfortunate realities of murder. Lord, whether it's those that have served in the military and have had to face the, the decision to kill another individual, to take the life of another person, Lord, I know how it clings to their conscience as they wonder, is that okay or is it not? Lord, help us to be discerning in the choices that we make for the soldier as well as for the mother of that unborn child or for that one who has that family member who who might be in a vegetative state or the one who is deemed not to have a quality of life or for the one who is contemplating suicide for themselves. Lord, help us to see that this commandment was not given us for our burden, but because you love us and that we can find hope through you. That though we have this physical life, we know that we've been given eternal life through your son because in him was life. Lord, he is our life. Lord, help us to see that we can have forgiveness for the sins that we've done, even murder. Just as even Saul, who was later called Paul, participated in the, the, the malicious murder of many different Christians, yet you showed your grace to him and forgave him and then used him as an agent of grace to share your loving grace and forgiveness of sins to so many different people. And Lord, for the young people that are growing up within our midst, that are entering into schools where or where. A gunman could come in at any time. Lord, help us to be able to speak to them in love. Help us to show the true love of Christ to them so they would see that that's not an option. Lord, help us not to play a game with life, but to value it, to treasure it, to speak to those with great compassion and your love most of all, sharing the truth of Christ. Lord, please glorify yourself in our midst and help us to defend life at all costs. In Jesus' name we pray.